In a world filled with movies, it can be hard to choose just one to watch. What do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you want to watch? I'm not deciding this. What do you want to watch? I asked first. Come on. What do you want to watch? No. What do you want to watch? What do you want to watch, Patrick? What do you Where even watch? narrowing down a you genre can be a struggle. How about we watch a drama? Too many emotions. Okay, then how about we watch an action film? Too many explosions. I know, I know. Let's watch a horror movie. Oh, uh, Dad, just do an interview already. Welcome, everybody, to the Diecast Movie Podcast, where this episode we have a special interview brought to you by my dad. Take it away, Dad. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. And today... I have a special interview for everybody. I'm joined by Oscar and Emmy award-winning actor and humanitarian, Mr. Lewis Gossett Jr. How are you doing today, Mr. Gossett? I'm blessed and highly favored, my friend. Excited about talking to you. Oh, it's a, my, the pleasure is mine to talk to you. And you've had a career for seven, almost seven decades now. I mean, you have been yep. a, a blessed man to, with, with the, being able to do what you do. I'm amazed. I'm constantly amazed. Don't take it for granted. These my puppies. There's some some deer going by the window, and my puppy saying, "Get on and get off my property." <laughs> <laughs> my my little puppy does the same thing. He, he, he likes to bark at deer and birds. Deer. <laughs> <laughs> You're on my property. What are you doing? And the deer just look by and ignore him. <laughs> I, I think they do the same to him. It makes him feel sad. He's he's a little Shih Tzu, so it's like you know everybody right. looks at him always okay. barking. You're so cute and. Oh yeah, well. I got, yeah, yeah. They're my babies, though. It's okay. Oh, you got I love them. You got to love your canine companions. You got that right, because that's unconditional, unconditional love. How many? How many? Um, um, little the little puppies do you have? I got two. They both. Uh, one is. They're both. Uh, 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 what's the name of it? Uh, I forgot the name of them. They're, 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 but they're both. Uh, 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 Mexican name Chihuahua, so they're both Chihuahua. Oh, and one is half, half miniature Doberman, the other is half is a ter- terrier, but they're both half Chihuahua. Oh, that's pretty about interesting. Six, about six years old. Oh, they're at a good age, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're amazing, beautiful animals. Oh, um, I know. My mom has a Chihuahua, so it's uh, she loves her, she loves her little polo. Great, great personality, great personality. That is true, that is true. And yeah. you started off in Brooklyn, New York, growing up. That's right. And what was it like growing up in Brooklyn back in, because you, you know, in the 30s and the 40s? Because I know my dad, he grew up in Baltimore in the 30s and the 40s, and um, I think yeah. it's probably pretty similar. Yeah, well, it's a combination because there was no very little. Uh, Coney Island is a place where everybody goes. There's an amusement park and stuff. So, so, so whatever problem there was, it was brought to them. During the summer holidays, but it's a place for everybody to hang out. So going to the roller coasters and the, the ocean, and then uh, when there was not roller coasters and the summer was over, it kind of receded into a wonderful inter- international neighborhood. So when I would get home at six, seven, or eight years old from uh, from first the junior high school, the high school, the the, the, the public school, and then the junior high school, mm-hmm. uh, it was right across the street. When I get home and my parents were not home enough in, in time for dinner, I had a choice. And my choice was kofilta fish or corned beef and cabbage or lasagna. Depends on who was home. Same thing with us. So, so I had some Jewish people eat, eating uh, 
fried chicken <laughs> and uh, and all the stuff. Well, we have a choice of uh, who, who was home would eat. And so we created this very special society. Uh, we were all poor, post-depression, and all the boys had was a broomstick handle, and then they cut off the, 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 the broom part of it, and it'd be a bat. If you want to hit a home run, uh, a stick ball, you'd have to hit the ball. Past three stores, and that's a home run. And the third base was a Chevrolet on the left. <laughs> and all the girls had was a uh, chalk and rope. And, you know, we were in seventh heaven. We didn't know anything about any racism or any war because we're uh, post-depression children. Well, so, I- as opposed to what we saw in the newspapers, that's one thing. But the way we grew up was another. And the society that came out of there was the Barbara Streisands, and the Arthur Millers, Neil Simon, Neil Sedakis, Paul Anker. We all kind of grew up together. Yep. And so I didn't have any of that problem until later on when I went to California. But my childhood was a combination of those those middle age, those middle Europeans that ran away from Hitler. And the intellectual cream of the crop of America who uh, came as a result of those people in Europe. And I was raised with the benefits of all of those cultures, complete cultures, Italian, Irish, black, we were together. And that's I'm I'm not some total of that which meant that I could get along with anybody. I was unique. So I was going to the schools and the synagogues and the, and the chapels everywhere. My best friends were Italian and Jewish, and everything was good until I got into 1966 to Los Angeles. So well, I didn't know what this was, what this problem was until I left town. Before we get the way, go ahead. Before we get to California, though, which, as I was going to say, when you were growing up in Brooklyn, you were also um, very athletic, and I, I remember you, when you were going, if I read correctly, when you were going through school, you were thinking of either going into an athletic scholarship and getting a medical degree. Absolutely. The- I wanted to be a brain surgeon because my, 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 my cousins and aunts and uncles were dying of, of, of brain stuff and then heart attacks. And, and I wanted to save their lives. If I could save some lives, I wanted to be a therapist, a, 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 a brain therapist and a, and, a, and, a, and a brain surgeon so I could take care of my, my family. And my friends who were dying too soon for me, the elders. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, I, and I, the best way I could do it is to get a scholarship by playing baseball and basketball. I grew up with Sandy Koufax. You grew up with Sandy Koufax? Yeah, so he was, uh, he was in the opposite uh, neighborhood. And he worked here and they played ball. And uh, we, were, we were sponsored by Sugar Ray Robinson. And he was, a sponsor, he was sponsored by the oil company, the Park Fuse. And we have this uh, both in basketball and baseball and football. He was the greatest athlete I've ever seen. I didn't know who he was and he didn't know who I was. But uh, we saw each other in the All-Star game. We, we saw each other in, in the Knicks camp. And I was able to root for him when he played for the Dodgers. Greatest athlete I've ever seen was Sandy Koufax. And I was going to say, you were a Dodger fan growing up, correct? Yes, to the bone. To the, I mean, it's just, I, I, I can't imagine growing up Watching the Brooklyn Dodgers when you had the Duke Snyders, the, the Jackie Robinsons, the Pee Wee Reeses of the world playing, and, and you were Rogers able to see Roy Campanella. Yeah, you got that right. You got that right. And I was young enough to, for them to, uh, to be a, uh, a professional actor and fairly famous for them to know who I was, too. So we had a nice relationship. I did the, in the Roy Campanella story called It's Good to Be Alive. I played uh, his best friend, the trainer. Mm. It kept him alive, and uh, it was a pleasure to meet Roy Campadonna and his wife before he passed away. 
Well, I got very close to uh, to Roy uh, during the Happy Felton's Nuthole Gang. If people are on listening to this interview from Brooklyn, and they remember Happy Felton, I, I, this, that's a no-brainer. With the Don Newcombs and the Joe Blacks and the Billy Coxes. And, wow, what a great team. Oh, I, I, of course, I remember my dad telling me stories about, you know, because uh, he loves sports, I love sports, and you learn about these players that I never got a chance to see play. You know, I would see them sometimes on TV and they'd introduce this, you know, here's Jackie Robinson or here is so, you know, like Mickey Mantle. Oh, and, Carl Calparello, the Reading Rifle. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just amazing. Yeah. And and he and he knew them because he got to hear them on the radio and right. and follow along. And But I'm just curious, with Jackie Robinson, when, when he came in and broke the color barrier, what was that like for you growing up? You know, I'm just, I'm, you know, because you always and hear stories. I, can, I used to run bow-legged the way he used to. <laughs> <laughs> he said, I figured that's the only way to do it. So I did that a lot. I had to learn to do my own. But he was such an impressive uh, celebrity. I did that. I used, to, I used to emulate Don Newcomb and Roy Campanella. Those were my heroes at the time. And, I, and let's say you had some great heroes, and they, and, and you had – I think people, certain people rise to the occasion when they need when they're needed to be there, and these men were the right people at the right time. Yeah, it's the right combination of people. The, the Dukes and Gil Hodges and Carl Farrell, that they became a team. When they were tired, we were getting ready to uh, we uh, the Dodgers were getting ready to uh, go to the playoffs and play against the Giants, and there was a little uh, freakish, and all of a sudden, Gil Hodges came to Jackie Robinson's defense, and the entire team came out. And from that time on, it was Brooklyn Dodge. They identified with one another. The P.V. Reese's and the Gil Hotches, they were one team. It was beautiful to watch. Or to hear on the radio, because the radio was, was number one in more television at the time. <laughs> well, I mean... It, I asked my father for color television. He got me, got me some, some magnifying glass and, and, and a blue ink. <laughs> 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 you got color TV there, son. <laughs> If you had, when you had great play-by-play men with baseball, they could paint the picture for you so well what was going oh, on. It, it, Absolutely. You know, Red Barber was first. And when he was retired, he introduced, and I would listen to that, and I told Vince, God rest his soul, Vince Scully, that I was a, a present when he was introduced from the old redhead, jumping off, a, a, jumping off a log and hollering to you from Brooklyn. And here's the new redhead, Vince Scully. And he was so good that he automatically took over. And so I was raised with the Red Barber and eventually Vince Scully. And also another name I want to mention from those good old days is Happy Felton. And he had a thing called the Nuthole Gang. All the, all the young athletes from junior high school and high school was, were sent to, to uh, Ebbets Field. And uh, they had some stars and they'd throw the ground ball or, or, or fly ball. And we catch them, and we have a winner. We all were winners. We got a chance to go to the locker room and get the autographed baseballs and bats and gloves. I did it 15 times. That was so so much fun before I became an actor. Oh, that's, Happy felt not whole game. Man, that is just amazing. And it's 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 not often I get to talk to somebody, you know, who grew up during that time. Like I said, my dad's passed away, and um, our our big play by play guy was Chuck Thompson. I don't know if you're familiar with his name, but Chuck Thompson, he used to do um, the Colt, the Baltimore Colts, the Orioles, 
and all that stuff. He just had one of those voices, and every so often he would be on um, TV. I think the um, the game of games, the biggest football game ever, the Baltimore Colts versus I think it was the Giants. I hear you. He was the one doing the play-by-play on the TV. Well, then I heard it. I heard it. I, I think about the wrong side thing about Mel Allen and Russ Hodges. Uh, Mel Allen was uh, for the Yankees. Mm-hmm. And then Russ Hodges was for the Giants. So, so, so it's the home runs were named after sponsors. So one home run was called the Old Gold Race, the Old Gold Cigarette. And then the other was, uh, I can't remember, but it was named after a cigarette. Uh, the old, listen, Old Goldie, Valentine Blast, as a Valentine beer. But those are the home runs. And they said that a lot with the Dodgers and the Yankees. Oh, yeah, two rivals going through it back then. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And they, they're part. They're part of the society. You turn them on. You heard their voice. You didn't know. You know the name, the number. Excuse me, sneeze. But just just knew, knew the, 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 We didn't even know the number of, of the station. All you do is listen to listen to the voice. Mm-hmm. All it was very great. I tell you, and the voices back then were just so memorable. And it's just, it's just, it's, it seems nowadays you don't have as many distinct voices coming through on radio or TV or movies as there was back when I was growing up and when you were growing up, when you could just, when you have people like Rich Little that could just do the different voice impersonations and you know right away who they're talking about. Now it's kind of hard to do. That's really nice. Rich is a good old friend now. He's inviting me back to Vegas. I'm going to go see him. But uh, those voices were more important then than they are, I guess, now, in a way. It's more than voices now. You have to see the, the, the announcers on the air. But uh, we knew those voices very well, and we could turn it and wait for the voices, and we knew what, what uh, team we were listening to. It was a very exciting time. Now, you, as we said, you were looking to go into a medical career, but you had an English teacher that kind of changed your trajectory, so to speak, to where you were going to yeah, go. He's a, he's a former theater producer and director. And in Europe, he was fairly famous. His name was Gustav Bloomberg. And he had to run from Hitler. Most of those intelligent people, the intellectual cream in the crop of Europe, ran from Hitler, came to the United States. And uh, uh, the, the board of directors, his name was William Jansen, and he was sensitive. They got those, those teachers uh, out of the university into this the boondocks, Coney Island, Staten Island, etc., Bronx, Long Island, Queens. We had the intellectual cream of the crop of America teaching us in third, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. And Gustav Bloomberg, who was still looking at the 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 the, 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 the stuff about the casting and stuff, the dailies, and he says, "Hey, Louis, he says I'm looking here and I'm looking for a young kid to play a, a leader in a Broadway show. I never had seen a Broadway show." And I said, tell your mother to take you down there on Sunday. What can you lose? So I got into BMT with my mother. I went up there on Sunday, and I met all these people. And uh, to make a long story short, I got the part. They told me how to act over the next year. And a year later, on Labor Day, I opened on Broadway in a lead in a play called Ticket Giants at 1953. And that's how I got started. I didn't stumble into it. I didn't... Uh, uh, suffer anything. I got a lead on Broadway show as the first job. And, and, and so we got this is quite a story, huh? And what an appropriate name for a play for you. Take a giant step. I mean, absolutely. 
And that's when I met all my friends in, in the business. Eddie Fisher, you remember him? Yep. And his best friend was going to play with me, so I met Eddie Fisher, and, uh, and it was very nice. Uh, Stephen Eady, they were nice. And Milton Burrell, Red, Red, Red uh, uh, what's the Red's name? Uh, the comic. Red, Red Buttons or Red Skeleton? Red, Red Buttons. Red Skeleton was my hero. Red Skeleton was my hero. He uh, was great, great humorist, great man. Steve Allen. Slowly but surely, I met the New York Society, and they were very good to me. Not until I got out of there and came to California, following my friends, did I ever get experience a uh, racial thing. Because I was acting the way uh, I was an old kid acting in New York. I had a, a, a rental car, and they gave me a rental car, a Hertz rental car, which was a, a eggshell white uh, Ford Galaxy 500 mm-hmm. with a convertible and, and a, with a red interior. And I was going down sunset, and it took me four hours to get back to the hotel. I met every cop in the, in the section. Who do you think you are? That was my first experience. And that's what happened then. So I had to overcome that. But I'm glad I was old enough to have the experiences with my friends first to know what's best in life. And that's what's best in life today, which leads all the way to my foundation, which is called E-Racism. Still has its enemies, but it also has a lot of its friends. But uh, the way it was in my childhood up until 1966 and today is the way I live and agree. There's no enemies in this country. It's just misconceptions. We need one another to save one another. It's in the, it's in the Declaration of Independence. It's in the Pledge of Allegiance. And the closer to America we get, the better we're going to be, all of us. So that's me until God calls me. The elimination of racism, the automatic assumption that one race is superior to another does not work, not anymore. Never really did. But just like the good old days in Coney Island, this is the way we should be now today. Yeah, the, the good old, um, um, I, I, can, I, I totally agree with what you're saying because when I grew up, like in Baltimore, I lived in a small country town for the first few years, and my dad moved back to Baltimore to take care of his mom. And again, yeah. you're, you're in Baltimore City and you have everybody around you and you just grow up and you just, everybody's there, you know, it's just, you don't realize it. And you take it for granted. You want it to be that way all the time. Yeah. And it's just, and then you find out from other people when they say these things, it's like, well, it, it just boggles your mind, especially when you're a child. Like, what, what does that matter? And uh, it doesn't make any sense, not here in this country. Correct. We're, we're, we're excellent together. We're wonderful together, both in sports. Look at the look at the Dodgers now, and look at the Giants now. They're fighting one another. Who's going to win the tennis? It's beautiful to watch. And look at the Olympics. How do we represent America? It's so multi multi ethnic. And they're smiling at the end. That the, the closing ceremony was gorgeous. It's pretty good stuff. A pretty good country. I'm very patriotic. But the way they says in the words, the way I interpret them, that means everybody. Yep. And that's the way the country starts to shine. Now, going back a little bit, you had a you had another fork in the road where you had to make a decision where you were drafted by the, the New York Knicks. Yeah, and you had to choose between that and acting on the stage. And I think you did a if I if I read correctly, you made a rather practical decision. I made a practical decision because uh, I was uh, hired by Lorraine Hansberry and uh, that crew, and they gave me some per diem. And uh, I had more money in my pocket than they had in the bank. <laughs> and the highest paid athlete was, I think, Bob Cousy. 
$125,000 a year. And uh, I was well taken care of. Uh, I was just done that per diem. By the time they gave me some money for it, I was taking care of my mother and father's home and my grandparents' home. And I didn't have to get up so early in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> and back in the, in, the, in the next training camp in the Catskills, they were fist fighting, had no money, and quite desperate. So I needed to step away from desperation one more time and go once again to the place where we're one nation indivisible uh, together. We needed one another. It was a beautiful society. Now, if I understand correctly, your, your, your way to get into film was through a raisin in the sun. Yes, sir. And what was it like working with that cast? I mean, you talk about some of the greatest actors ever were in A Raisin in the Sun, both the theatrical version and the film version. Absolutely. The best the best in the business were in A Raisin in the Sun, starting, of course, with Sidney Poitier, and, of course, Ruby Dee, and Claudia McNeil, and, and the love of my life, Diana Sands, and Lonnie Elder III, and the understudies were Robert Hooks. And people like that, and the people that surround them, Douglas Stern Award, um, all kinds of uh, great people. And then, then they, the kids, they broke me in as far as the love of the fear and acting is concerned. They broke me in. And it broke into that from there to, to the blacks, which had uh, uh, Roscoe Lee Brown and James Earl Jones and Cicely Tyson and Maya Angelou. I learned pretty well about what it takes to be an artist. And I loved it. I fell in love with it, whether you're broke or poor or famous or unfamous. It's a great lifestyle. Oh, it is. My daughter has a theater degree in um, production, the production side of it. And we're a theater family. We love to go see the live stage. You know, know, when you you fall in love with the lifestyle, you fall in love with the people. It's it's very nice to be around them. And and I had had one person I talked to and they said the one the one the only thing about theater every performance is tailor made to that evening's performance absolutely and then if you get serious about it then you start studying and then you learn the three different uh, forms of acting one is for theater and the other is for television which is a small screen and the third is for the movies which takes uh, very small because the screen uh, makes you large you have to learn three kinds of acting and it's wonderful to make money, to make a living on those three ways of making a living. And you meet the greatest people, the Steve McQueens and the Jim, Jimmy Deans and the Jim Garners and those guys. Great bunch of people. Oh, you, I mean, you've been, you've worked with so many wonderful actors throughout your career. And I mean, and your IMDb list is longer than the New Testament. Not the Old <laughs> Testament, but the New Testament. The new one, yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, it's just it, when you have a career seven decades long, you just can't help but be in, in just a few things. <laughs> just a few things here and there. Otherwise, you got to go back to, to being a, a basketball player. That's too late. <laughs> <laughs> but just before. So it's amazing. I've been very, very lucky. But one other thing I want to talk about that a lot of people don't realize you did, you also co-wrote a song, Handsome Johnny. Yeah. Yeah, that, that helped me get along when it was very little uh, acting work. I, I had a guitar and I sang, and we opened up uh, the, the, the cafe wall. Everybody came through there, the bitter end and stuff. And I wrote a song, and uh, my favorite was Richie Haven. And I wanted to give it to him because I know he would sing it, and it would sound great. So fade out, fade in, he's the first one to open and stuck. They asked him to, uh, to, uh, to, 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 to a little, uh, you know, play a little music while the helicopter would disappear. 
helicopter drops all the athletes and all the artists off behind the stage. Very noisy. The helicopter was left, and Richie was singing. And then finally he sang my song, which stopped me. And then he starts singing, Hey, look at you understand what you say. Marching from the fields of Concord. Looks like a handsome Johnny with a flintlock in his hand. Marching from Concord. Marching from the Concord, boy. It's a long, hard road. Long, hard road. Long, hard road before we'll be free. Of course, the last part of the song is, what's the use of singing this song? Some of you are not even listening. What is it we have to do? Wait for our fields to start glistening? Here comes a hydrogen bomb. Here comes a guided missile. And it goes on like that. It, it's a very it's a very powerful song, and um, uh, I, I'm probably going to do if it's okay if you at the end of the interview um, when I'm putting this episode in, I'll probably put part of the song out there so people can hear it if they haven't heard it before. It's an anti anti war, anti war. It's just me and Richie sang it together on the, on the Welcome Home Vietnam Vet, uh, and you can get that on your internet, and you can see the two of us singing the song. And uh, ironically. Uh, some of the side things. And when we went to California, I did a series. I did a series. Now, my partner was the late Felix Papillardi. We were getting ready to, we were opening up for the Kingston Trio and people like that, and he passed away. So I left and went to California to do a series called The Young Rebels, and that failed. So now I got this house, I got no money, and they're getting ready to put me out. The very same day the, the uh, mailman came, they opened up the top letter, and it was a $72,000 check from Unite Music for Handsome Johnny. That's the closest I ever gotten to being homeless. And so I believe very much in God since that day. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Think, things happen for a reason, and you don't always know yes, why, but you just got to have you just got to have faith. Well, today is the day for getting rid of racism. We're going back to the place we were and when we were together needing one another desperately for our mutual salvation. We're at our best then. Everybody comes from where they are to America to live like that. And so we need to do more of it, and the problems will go away, I guarantee. Oh, I, I, I guarantee it too. I mean, I agree with you. And I'm, before I talk about two of your new movies that just came out within the last year, I want, mm-hmm. I want to talk about two of your older movies to balance it uh-huh. out. And um, I know if anybody's listening to our interview, they're expecting us to talk about an officer and a gentleman because you won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for Gunnery Sergeant Emil Foley. And your prep work for that is legendary, I think, you know, how you prepared for it. Well, I prepared for it. I went down to the DI school. Once I got the part, I said, too bad you you get what you asked for. Now you got to be a a DI. So I I drove down to San Diego to make of Camp Pendleton, uh, the man by the name of uh, Gunny Rich Dower, D-O-W-E-R, in charge of the DI school. And he said, he gave me a, put a couple of uh, these DIs in charge. I did everything but uh, drink and smoke the camels and drink the beer. Everything else I did. <laughs> and then six weeks later, I was a DI. And I went to, the, to uh, up uh, north of, uh, of Seattle, Port Townsend, with two of them in tow, two of those D.I.s in tow, and they corrected the rest of the movie. And they say, no, 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 D.I.s wouldn't say that. They would say this. And Taylor Hack would listen to them. And when he listened to them and put the right things on, the D.I.s should have the Oscar because they made this Hollywood movie into something real. So I just followed orders. I was able to to fight and to to speak like them 
and it was a, it was a, a match made in heaven. You definitely had some good support with um with them doing it. And the one thing I want to bring up, you had that powerful fight scene with Richard yes, Gere in it. And um, what was it like? I I heard you got like injured during that or something. Yeah, both both of us hurt ourselves, but not as much because you learn in a movie when you do stuff like that. If you punch somebody and you want some contact, you make it it's called loose fingers so nobody gets hurt. But out of the, uh, we rehearsed uh, and uh, practiced. I re- we qualified for a third degree black belt in Taekwondo. I had it before that, but I got it again. And so Richard Beardier got an incredible shape. So I had a little hairline fracture in the rib, and he had a little little fracture in the in the uh, shoulder part, but nothing terminal. But that's amazing for us to have done as much rehearsal as possible, make it look like it looked. It was wonderful. Now, I know, how, how much of the fight team was both for you? Was it virtually all of it or most? Just virtually all of it, yeah. Except the final kick. I, I wasn't accurate on that one, so they got a, a, a black uh, martial artist to do that one. I didn't want to make an accident. I didn't want to make a, a mistake there because Richard Gere's voice is high enough. <laughs> <laughs> and, and for those that don't remember where the final kick goes, it's a, just you can YouTube it, the fight's there, and, and let's put it this way. <laughs> It's a true life fight because when you're in a fight, everything is out there. You know, you can go for anything. Everything. That's what they have to, the Marines have to teach uh, the Marines. And the Marines are like that today. I'm very proud of that, that, bunch, that branch of the service. The United States Marines are the top of the line. Well, I'm definitely not going to argue with that. And um, my favorite movie, if I had to pick one movie of yours that I think I've enjoyed the most watching and when I saw it in the theater, is enemy mine. Oh boy. Everybody turned that down because it's too hard a job and I'm looking to make it and be different. So I took it and, uh, I had to study with a, a ballet person and a little physical fitness, which I had done anyway. And, uh, and a yogi and learned how to, how to justify all those thought processes, which made sense to me still today. Um, and the rest was on the script, and then we'd rewrite it according to what I was creating. We did Russian backwards, that was his language, and uh, then I did something that I didn't do when I was a kid. I mean, I did when I was a kid, uh, communicating with the Lone Ranger. And I was able to do that by speaking with him. So I had to stop teaching the sound there. So let me have a, 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 a voice level. So I go, okay. One, two, three. And he'd go crazy <laughs> until he knew who I was. <laughs> was that awful sound? <laughs> he, would, he would go crazy. He'd go breaking in the sweat. Did you get your battery on? But I finally told him it was me. But it was nice. It was nice uh, doing six months of that hard, hard job. It was five hours of makeup. Uh, three hours to get it off. A lot of sleeping. A lot of good food in Germany. Great food in Germany. And, and, and it was a pleasure working with... Uh, with the great filmmakers there. It was very nice. Wolfgang Peterson and his group. It's really good. Yeah, because I remember, like, they had a different director to start with, and then he came in to take over yeah. the production. And then the whole thing, the whole production, and then we moved to to, uh, to his studio in Germany. Now, you said a lot of people, why did a lot of people turn it down? Because it was too difficult. Too difficult. Dustin was almost was the door. He said it's too much for it. 
I mean, it's three hours of makeup, and you have to create from scratch a uh, character from another planet, and the speech pattern, you have to be physically in shape. And he's a great actor, but I don't know if he wanted to, to challenge his, his uh, reputation by failing at something like that. He's good enough. He's one of the greatest I've ever seen. But I needed to, I was hungry. I wouldn't mind trying it, so I tried it. Put everything I had into it. So I thank you, Dustin, for turning it down. <laughs> And that's one of the things I think I've heard you say before. You look for, when you look at roles, you look for things that you can bring something different or new to it or challenges yourself. Yeah. It's called a stretch. And you learn that in the, in the actor's studio. You learn stuff that's going to challenge you. So that, means that keeps your attention on the job more than just a, an average character. Now, what was it like, what was it like working with Dennis Quaid? Because that was, as I know you both did Jaws 3. Right. So it's nice to work with somebody you know before. And him and Jimmy Woods are two guys I work with a lot. So you learn how to work with them. They're good friends, good people. Work with Dennis and, and his brother. And Jimmy Woods. There's a lot of things with Jimmy. And there's a, there's a, uh, a good luck charm working with those two guys because uh, the things become hits. Oh, I know. It's, 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 I've enjoyed a lot of their work. And, and, when, when there is a film that I sometimes don't enjoy, and some people will say, oh, it's because the acting was this or that, I always try to re remind myself and remind the people is the actor has to play with the, the screenplay was given, and also they don't, but they also do not have control over the director and the editing. So No, 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 <laughs> but you have to have that in your mind when you study uh, acting. So you can make the director and the editor and the cameraman be on your side. And there's this little thing you do in an acting class to learn how to do that. It's called dancing with the camera. I learned that from Sidney Poitier. He didn't know I was studying him, <laughs> but I learned it from him. Well, you couldn't learn from anybody better. I mean, it's just, you know. You got that right. <laughs> yeah. Great, great Caribbean man. Great man. I've enjoyed everything he's done. I've enjoyed everything you've done. And you've done two movies recently. Now, when I met you at the Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention, Mm -hmm. um, which was in Baltimore. For those listeners, it was in Baltimore back in August. And you agreed to the interview. And um, you said to me, Steve, watch The Cuban. It's going to make you cry, which you're correct. <laughs> <laughs> and Foster Boy. And right. I had not heard, and I didn't hear anything about these two movies till you told me that. And I wanted to talk about both of them because. I think a lot of people are like myself because of COVID hitting the coronavirus hitting at that time. There's some movies that, right. that fell under the radar yes, and, they did. and the Cuban, we'll start with that one first. I find, I enjoyed that movie so much. It was, if I had to summarize in one word, I would say it's beautiful. Yes. It made me cry, but it's beautiful. How it handles life. The great filmmaker, Sergio. So, so it was international to begin with. And uh, my leading lady, she's from Middle Europe, and uh, yeah, I'm from Brooklyn, New York, and Sergio, Italian, Canadian. And uh, then we had the Afro-Cuban story and, and all kinds of combinations of people working together for one common thing to make the best we can, and we did it. And, of course, the, the, the coronavirus came in and got in the way. But if everything was equal, I'm sure that that would get more attention than anything else. That and the, the uh, foster boy which is about uh, a controversy about the, the foster care children and they've been abused. And that's part of the, 
part of the, the fund you re- will try to raise so that uh, better people get these children and get this money to take better care of these children, these foster kids. But oh. uh, two two movies that have a have a thing, and and it's reruns. It's getting the attention, like Enemy Mine, and it's reruns. Yep. And with the with the Cuban, just if, um, just to give people an idea what it's about, you play the title character, the Cuban, um, yeah, who's um, an, an, a, um, a guitar player who was great in Cuba, who leaves Cuba, comes to the United States, and then decades later, you were at an old person's home suffering from um, Alzheimer's and all of that. Yep, and this one character, Mina, played by Anna Goha. Goja. Goja. Um, Mm -hmm. And she comes in and she basically, by using music, which music is throughout this movie, brings you, in a sense, back to life. Because you were. Back to life. The food, the ambiance, the smell brings me back to life. And she did it. And it was a a very nice experience with that young lady. She's going to be a star. She's a singer, an actress, a songwriter, a dancer. She's very good. She's, it's, 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 it's a no-brainer for her to be a star. Uh, she's going to be. Oh, I, I, if I, I have anything to do with it, she will be. <laughs> I agree with you because it's, it's basically the two of you are the main characters of the movie, and it's just I, it's wonderful. Yeah, we had a wonderful time working with, it, with each other. And it, very good. Because your character brings – she brings you back to life, and then you bring her back to life. Absolutely. It was done just beautiful. Just beautiful. And Sergio, uh, I keep on mentioning Sergio's name because he's the, the godfather of the story. Great director. It was it was awesome. It was just I, I don't I don't want to talk too much about it because I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but it's it's out there. You know, um definitely seek it out and watch it. You'll enjoy it. It it's it's well acted, well directed, well written. So enjoy it. Enjoy it. Get back to me if you want. Enjoy it. Now, Foster Boy um, mm-hmm. is a different kind of movie. I find it powerful, you know, because it, it, it goes over, as you said, about the foster care system. Yeah, and then, and, and there's a con- combination uh, inquiry now about the foster care system and, and the misuse of these foster kids being taken advantage of. So it's contemporary. And I play the judge in that. And I understand you you um, originally were not going to be the judge. It was going to be James Earl Jones. Right, yeah. James Earl Jones was running a little tired, and he needed to take a rest. So I had a lot of shoes to fill there. Hopefully he likes what I did for him. He's a great. He's one of the greatest actors I've ever worked with or known. Oh, he's another one. I mean, you've, you've, I mean, what can you say about James Earl Jones that hasn't been said? It's just he's wonderful. But I think your portrayal of the judge – Every actor is going to bring something different to the role, and, mm-hmm. and and you were able to do it really well. And Matthew Modine, well, I like him a lot. He plays. Really like him. Yeah, he's he's excellent. So um, let's, let's do it again. <laughs> and the young actor who played Jamal, Sean yeah. Paul, McGee, 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 yeah, McGee. Yeah, he's, he's, he's due for for another big role because he's really brilliant out of UCLA. He he definitely brought that character, um, made it full of so well rounded, and was able to show the 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 damage that was done to him. 
at a young okay. age. Good. Yeah. So we're covered all the ground, haven't we? Yes, we have. So, yeah. So, so we'll watch out for use the name and watch out to search it, and I'll still be here with God's help doing a foundation and other movies. There's a lot of stuff to do. Let's see when we get to to year number 71. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Gossett, we'll have another interview. I want to thank you so much for allowing me to interview you and talk about these movies and um, a little bit of career and, and hopefully down the road we can like a year or so from now we can do another we'll continue on to be continued to be continued because there's i think like i said you're you're we've only scratched the tiny bit of the surface of what you've done but i, I wanted to cover some that beginning area that people might have forgot about all right i'm appreciate that so thank you let's continue the conversation all right thank you sir all right bye-bye bye-bye i hope everybody enjoyed that interview with lewis gossett jr and as i talked about earlier with him he co-wrote the song with Richie Havens, Handsome Johnny, and they, as he alluded to, that they both sang it live in 1987 for the Welcome, Heart, Welcome Home concert. And I'm going to play that now to end this episode. I hope everybody enjoyed this episode, and please come back to listen to another episode where we'll either be listening to a movie decided by the roll of a die, an interview, or we'll be continuing on with our James Well retrospective series. I hope everybody has a good day. Stay safe. Bye. Put this song together about uh, how many years ago? About 1920? Uh, we, we wrote this in 1897, didn't we? That's right. Yeah, I think so. 